Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? Sorry for my audio today. I forgot my mic, but Austin, what have you been up to? Should have just canceled. No one wants to hear your ugly voice if you don't have a mic to crisp it up. <laughs> um, what have I been up to? So I guess we can give some updates on the flip or what was going to be a flip. Don't know if we're going to live in it instead, actually, as a primary. We'll see. It's a decision that I may make just because I get to enjoy it a little bit. And if I live in it as a primary, then I can have it as, uh, you know, like don't have to pay capital gains if I stay there for two, three, four years or whatever and just decide to stay put there. But it really depends on what the profit margin is. So not good advice, but it's on my personal name. So don't do as I do. But the reason why is, is because that's the only way I was able to get the VTV. And I didn't want the deal to fall through because there's a profitable deal. And I already asked for so much from a 92% VTB, 3% interest rate, all of that. And I was like, they were not budging on this. And even if I was to personally guarantee, so I was like, okay, let's just, let's just get the deal done, push it yeah, towards yeah. the finish line. But now there comes to that point where I would like to live in this, right? Because I feel emotionally attached to it. So I like the location, the finishes, it's like my baby now. So what are you guys going to do now? Because you sold your primary residence. Yeah, so that was the other thing. We may move into our pre-construction as well. When's that closing? That is closing. I think it should be sometime end of this year. Uh, right. So that's another thing to consider. There's so many aspects that I need to consider. Some of it's optimizing the outcome. Some of it's optimizing the lifestyle. I just had a conversation with Ming, Volition Properties. For those who don't know, he's been on our podcast before. And he said that conservatively, the ARV to be very conservative should be 1.175 mil current market, which would put me at over a six-figure profit, which would mean that my taxes are going to be just insane. Plus, we sold a couple of other properties this year. And you consider all of that, it just, you know, it's not the best position to be in. So I got I to gotta think through that. And on the other side of things with the five unit in Windsor, so we got it appraised at 1.17 million and Zajardin turned us down to financing it. It was ridiculous because we went through the entire process and they said we can't do it, partly because it was less than, I think, one year or six months. Like, you know how some of those financing companies have those policies? If it's like turnkey, they'll make the exception. But yeah, they they don't want to. So yeah, yeah, so they just they have a hard time wrapping their head around that. So they said, we'll loan you at your purchase price or your purchase price plus renovations. I was like, you know, to both, you know, play around with those renovations. (laughs) Yeah, it's too late for that, man. It's yeah, too late yeah. for that. <laughs> had I known, had I known. But yeah, so that's that's the crappy part right now is, is that they made us go through the entire process. They said it was okay. And then they just mentioned that. They try to point it at the appraisal and say there's some faultiness in the appraisal. I was like, dude, this is a 40-page narrative appraisal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like this is just your policy sort of thing. The guy's a newer mortgage, what do you call them? Mortgage specialist, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so... I guess, yeah, he did. He didn't know the rules, but that's going on. So trying to find a new lender to pivot to for that. How about you, man? What's going on on your side of things? Um, what is going on? Airbnb is finally ready to go live. I've been saying this for way too fucking long, but 
You got a septic tank inspection with that, right? I just saw your story. Shit. <laughs> but but it, it seems like we're fine. But I was tripping out, bro. I was like, fuck. I don't have a couple of like 10, 20 grand to like drop a new septic tank in here. And knowing the previous guy, there's no way you fucking maintain this shit correctly. But turns out we're okay. Who told you to do that? Is that an Airbnb rule? No, the city. They sent us a letter. We knew it was happening for like oh. now. Okay. And this letter saying we got to do a, a, I think it was like once every like 10 years, like septic tank inspection or something like that. And it's okay. like, use this company. If you use another company, you still have to pay this company like three hundred. I'm like, okay. this is stuff. stupid. Whatever. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. did it. AC is coming in today. Uh, <laughs> funny, man. Like cottage country. Yeah, I got a quote for, I think it was like almost 7,000, three, 400, something in that ballpark. For an AC unit? Yeah, for fucking AC unit. Bro, that's like less than two Gs or two Gs. Yeah, I, got these, I, yeah, I got these. I mean, it was a big house. So like the, the BTU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. BTU, you know, it was a little bit okay. more. I got someone from here to basically agree to go up there and install it for like $3,300. I'm like, this, and, and yeah. the was like, yo, like three, four weeks to install. I'm like, fuck that. I'm not losing even more prime time. So I paid someone a little bit more here and I just got done half the price. Yeah. Makes more sense. So that's going on. I got the seven plex that I need to close soon. And I got to refinance a nine. But honestly, the biggest challenge right now, man, is I'm just trying not to do anything. And I think yeah. just sometimes for us, like just sitting down and just going, okay, we're not going to buy any more real estate is, is a challenge on its own, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of at that point where I just want to stabilize and just re-clean things up a little bit more, focus on this Airbnb a little bit more. Where's your head at with the, with the economy? Let's talk about this like super high level. Obviously, we're not economists. We never claim to fucking know everything that's going on here. But where's your head at that you're concerned? I guess we can talk about it more from a real estate aspect of things, right? And how that's going to impact our our business. Because I'm, as you know, I'm working on this flip and I'm going to have another flip that I'm going to be closing on next month. And so my biggest worry is, is really consumer sentiment, right? Like 25 basis point hike that happened this week. Obviously, it was unexpected. I think it was something about 60, 70% of economists expected a, a rate pause this month and then a rate hike in, in July. But they hit us with, uh, you just go on the headline, surprise hike, surprise hike. And it's more so for me damaging to consumer sentiment because we're rolling into the summer market where things are already slowing down. There's been less multiple offers or sort of that's what I've been noticing, speaking with people boots on the ground. And on top of that, you add in the 25 basis point rate hike and that in itself, fine. But the issue is, is that there appears to be no slowdown in hikes in the near future. So there's another anticipated rate hike in July, right? Is there going to be another one? It depends on what they didn't really give too much comments when they did the rate hike this time around. They kind of just hit us with it and we're going to have to wait until July to get the full commentary. But if it's more bearish news, then I mean, it's going to do damage to sentiment and that's going to hurt flippers again. But I feel like we're going in, I feel like we almost go in circles. There's a great height, great height, great height, pause, demand comes back, you know, supply and demand issue. Yeah. I feel like had they kept going with the hikes last year, going into this year, just on like one more like 0.75, another like drastic one, we might have been in a different scenario, right? And I think that's from what I'm reading online, at least that's kind of the economist's concern is like they did a 0.25, which like, is that really like, I think I was looking at, I think it was like for every hundred grand in mortgage debt for me, I think it was like 15 or 25 or something like that per month. So it's like, it's not drastic. Right. And I think that's their concern is that the hike that they did wasn't drastic enough to actually have an impact. I mean, obviously time will tell, but I also think it's yeah. kind of concerning like, yo, like two months ago, there was no rumors about a fucking hike. Like no, no one was fucking. Yeah. Them. Yeah. And I think that's part of their thing. Their strategy was to do that rate hike because people were not expecting it. Right. The vast majority of people were not expecting it. So to hit them with that, it's like, it does impact 
ultimately you need to attack like the sentiment. You have to have people stop spending, right? Stop the housing market's fucking wild. The housing market blew up in what was it, May? It was May or May or April is when it, I want to say May is when it really took off or April. I feel like April it started taking off. April, all. April. Yeah, because like the entire banking crisis and then your fixed rates dropped down to mid fours and fucking all of a sudden all of this demand started. It was slowly booming back. But like in April, there's a noticeable shift. And now you're literally all your fixed are at least fives again. <laughs> Five and a, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I mean, this is a good segue into our guest today who's actually in the mortgage space, Mr. Sean Cooper. You might know him being the best-selling author of the book, Burn Your Mortgage, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom for Canadians. He bought his first house when he was 27 in Toronto and paid it down in three years by the age of 30. So that's an incredible feat. We go into a ton of, uh, I guess, unorthodox topics, topics we don't really touch on in this podcast. So made for an interesting conversation. We talked about why sometimes living debt free can be beneficial in, in taking sacrifices and risk and, and starting a business, the role of leverage in real estate investing, sort of what he's seeing in the first time home buyer side in the current sort of market, and many other sort of interesting topics. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Remember to leave us a five star review, comment, share this with a friend, and let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest and a best-selling author, Mr. Sean Cooper. Sean, how's everything going? Well, thanks for such a great introduction there, Austin. It's great to be on your podcast. I had you as a guest on my podcast, so it's cool for everything to come around full circle there. So excited to be on your show today. So for Sean, anyone that might not know you, uh, why don't you just give everyone kind of a quick background on yourself, who you are and what you do and how you got started? Sure. So I'm also known as the bird your mortgage guy because I bird my mortgage a few years ago. I don't want to make myself out older, but yeah, it was, it was a few years ago. It wasn't a couple of years ago, but uh, it was different times that I bought my house in August 2012 and managed to pay off my mortgage in only three years. It had a mortgage burning party that people might have seen on CBC back then. And I like planning out my life a bit, but I kind of go with the flow. So like when my mortgage birdie story came out, then I decided to write a book because CBC was interested in covering the book. And then I had so many people reaching out to me for help with their mortgage that I decided to become an independent mortgage broker. And here I am a few years later. So yes, it's been quite an exciting journey. And it's nice to be able to actually help people burn their mortgage if that's a goal of theirs or build wealth through real estate because it really depends on what people are looking to do. But uh, yes, it's so rewarding to be able to be on the other side, go from being a consumer to actually being in the industry and helping people as well. Awesome. I love that terminology, burn your mortgage. For those who don't know, essentially what that means is, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the one who coined the term, but paying off your mortgage as quickly as possible to live debt-free. And for a lot of people, housing debt is what looms over the mind on a day-to-day basis. Is, Is that right? Yes, but I don't want to take too much credit. I didn't invent the the term. It's actually been around for a while. I guess I just put it into the mainstream again there, but that is a term going back many years there. But yes, essentially, it's just ridding yourself of the mortgage debt. And the whole idea for me was that the mortgage is like an anchor that ties you to, to perhaps like not doing things that you might want to do in your younger age, like travel and take other exciting opportunities like starting your own business like what i did as a mortgage broker there i just wanted to have that freedom to be able to do that without worrying about having like three or four thousand dollar mortgage payments to make every single month so yeah i definitely am happy 
that like in hindsight, perhaps it wouldn't have been smart to pay it off as quickly as I did, but it definitely no regrets. I mean, I have been able to take a lot of risk and travel. I've been to 20 countries now. It would have been more if it wasn't for COVID here. So yeah, I wasn't able to travel at all because I had my nine to five job and only got like a couple of weeks of two, three weeks of vacation there. So definitely so happy that I took this opportunity and it's so rewarding to be able to help people with their mortgages. I don't think I would have been able to take that risk and to start my own business. That's just not something I would have been comfortable doing if I had a mortgage looming over my head. So yeah, definitely no regrets. I'm so glad that I pushed myself to do that. And yes, I'm happy where I am today. And Sean, so just because I think the concept of paying off your mortgage, I think most people would understand that. But what year was this in that you were paying off your mortgage aggressively? And how were you going about it? I think let's just dig into that a little bit. Sure. Well, I don't want to spoil all the details of my book, but it's been out for a few years there. So hopefully people have read it by now. But yes, it was a while ago. I bought my house in August 2012 and managed to pay it off in three years. So I paid it off in October of 2015 there. So I was a few years ago there, but yeah, I mean, the, the big reason that I paid it off, like I said, was to be able to free up my cash flow for other things, like to be able to, to travel and start my own business and not have that mortgage debt looming over my head. But if I could have done it over again, I would have done it differently. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily want to go to up topic, but yeah, I would have gotten like something like a readvanceable mortgage and perhaps used my equity for other smarter things like investing in a stock market or investing in other properties. But I just didn't know what I knew today. So like I said, hindsight's 2020, but yeah, I can't really go back in time, but I'm happy where I am in, in my life here. And yes, so of course, anyone can go back and, and look what they would have done better, but I don't live a life of regrets. So just try to make smart decisions going forward in my life. If you don't mind, what were you working in before? Because presumably, just top of my head, right? Like there's sort of questions that I think a lot of the audience would have is, is that to pay off your mortgage in a period of three, even in 2012, that's still a few hundred thousand. So immediately I would think the income would need to be really high. Were you working in sort of a high income job before? Or maybe your down payment initially to purchase the property was quite significant. Was it either one of those cases or was it just about being diligent and saving and putting like every penny towards the mortgage? Yes. Great question, Austin. So it was a combination of everything that you mentioned there. First of all, I had a a sizable down payment, over $150,000 down payment. And that was just by working really hard, like working three, four jobs, like for several years, even when I was in college and university, I held down several jobs and did like, uh, was a personal finance writer. So I was able to earn quite a bit of money from doing that. And I was able to graduate debt free and actually have money in the bank. So that really helped me out. And I also lived at home. I did my pay my mother room and board to live at home, but it wasn't like market rent rates or anything like that. So that definitely helped me save even more money. So it was a combination of putting down a larger down payment. Also, home prices being lower because I was able to buy my house for 425 and today it's worth over a million dollars. So just the affordable, more affordable home prices help because I had a mortgage of about $250,000. And nowadays I see people with mortgages of five, six, 700, even more than that these days. So having the smaller mortgage definitely helped. And I continue to do the side hustle, work those extra jobs. I had a full-time job at that point in time and earned a good salary from that. And I also got the idea from the show Income Property with Scott McGillivray. I was just going to live upstairs on the main floor. But then when I 
my father was a fan of the show and he, he encouraged me to watch an episode. And then I found out that he lived in the basement of his house for like something like seven, eight years. So then I'm just like, why don't I live in the basement? I can earn double the amount of rent. So by doing all those things together, I was able to pay off my, my mortgage in, in record time. But definitely if I was to do it over again in today's day and age, there's no way I could have paid off my mortgage in three years. The home prices are just so much higher, but I still think the lessons from my story and, and books still apply. But yeah, paying it off in there's this unique circumstances there. Paying it off in, in three years isn't realistic right now, but sure, you can definitely apply some of the things that I did and, and maybe knock a few years off your mortgage if that's something that you'd like to do. Mm-hmm. So Sean, your mortgage clients, I'm assuming they've kind of heard of the book and they've reached out to you on that. And they have kind of similar intentions. Like I'd say my clients are pretty much like, let's keep levering up and let's go the opposite way as years likely. But what do you see as like a realistic journey for them? Like how many years can you pay it off within in today's world? Is it like a 10 year plan? Is it a 15 year plan that you guys are coming up with? What's aggressive, but possible? Great question, Mayu. So it really depends on the short and long-term goals of mortgage clients. Like, yeah, there are some clients where they want to pay down the mortgage more aggressively because they only plan to ever own their primary residence. They don't want to become landlords for whatever reason. Maybe they've had family experiences growing up where things didn't go well. It just seems like based on maybe their parents or family owning a rental property that didn't go well, that they decide to not to own a rental property. But I don't really think that's a, a fair thing to base your decision on. Like, for example, when I was growing up, my parents had like a rooming house that they owned and things didn't go so well there. But of course, like, yeah, it's a rooming house. What do you expect? There's going to be high turnover and people aren't going to take as well care of the property there. So I think, yeah, prior experiences with family definitely play into whether you want to buy rental property. You also have to take that with a huge grain of salt because circumstances were different then. And yeah, if somebody owned like a rooming house or an Airbnb, you can't really compare that to like, if you're going to own like a long-term rental property there. So yeah, I mean, some clients do want to pay down their mortgage sooner. Others want to be able to leverage their equity to be able to buy further properties. So it's all about having that conversation with my mortgage clients, understanding like what they are looking for from an investment perspective, as well as just they want to be more involved in real estate or not. And for the ones that are just happy with one property, then I can help put them on the burn your mortgage plan. But for other people, maybe it doesn't make sense for them and they want to use that equity to buy further properties. So it's just having that conversation, asking the right questions is to understand what people's short and long-term goals are in deciding what makes the most sense for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just to kind of add on to that point, I think a lot of people are fixated because your story is paying it down in three years that they almost look at it like you have to pay it down in three years because you did it. But again, like times have changed. It's not always the case, but it's the principles. That's what matters, right? Like when we invest in real estate, when Mayu and I got started or even yourself, Sean, well, I guess we'll get into your real estate journey fairly soon. But when Mayu and I got started, we were buying properties like 200,000 and below And, you know, you can sit down today and make excuses like, oh, like, yeah, you guys started four years ago. Of course, like you amassed your portfolio. And yes, the timing definitely did help. But similar situation as you, someone could say like, oh, you started a decade ago. Yeah, but the principles that you're applying, you can still apply it today, although it may be harder, it may take a little bit longer, but house hacking, fundamental, right? You can Airbnb now on primary residence. So that's a lot more income than long-term rental income, right? So like just about being a little bit more creative, but it is still very much possible, but you do have to make sacrifices 
and determine what your priority is. But speaking about investing, I know you mentioned that if you're to go back in time, knowing what you know now, you may do things a little bit differently. Can we get into that, what you're doing differently today, right? Now that you have a property that I assume is free and clear, or maybe it's a HELOC on it. What are you doing right now from an investment perspective? And what do you recommend clients who are in a similar sort of position as you? Sure. Do you want me to hold, hold up my tax return right now? No, I'm just kidding. I'll let you in on it. But uh, but that was just a joke there. Any, anyway, so yeah, um, definitely if I, as I mentioned, if I had been able to go back in time, I would have taken out a readvanceable mortgage and just better utilize the equity instead of it just sitting there. But the issue was that I just wasn't like, yeah, I had a great mortgage broker that helped me out, but he just wasn't, I guess, the right it for me, I guess it's similar to your story, Austin, when you were looking to buy your first property in Windsor there, like I believe you said you worked with a realtor that perhaps like didn't understand rental properties or something like that. And you kind of had to find the right people that had the expertise in the area that you needed, like buying rental properties. It's the same thing with me. If I had have been matched with the right financial professionals at that point in time, the right people that like could have perhaps uh, started this wealth building journey earlier. So yeah, today I have a readvanceable mortgage and I'm using the equity in my property for investment purposes rather than just having it sit in, in my property and do nothing for you. Because I kind of look at it this way. I mean, it's great to have a free and clear property, but if it's just sitting there and doing nothing for you, if the home value isn't at least keeping up with inflation, you're actually losing money. So I like putting the, the money to work rather than just having it sit there and do nothing for me. And also it's tax-free money that you can put to use if you just leave it sitting there, like you're not taking advantage of a huge amount of money there. And yeah, like the primary resident is like one of the best kept secrets or whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah, like you can really shelter so much wealth with the primary residents, like other countries don't have the, the same benefit, like Canada that here where we can really shelter our residents. So yeah, I just look for different ways to take advantage of it. And yes, a, a revanceable mortgage is an easy way to do that. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that, but essentially that just means when you pay down the mortgage, you have a credit immediately available to you on the home equity line of credit, and then you can do whatever you want with that money, whether it's invest in the markets or put that towards like a, a rental property. So yes, I should have probably set that up earlier, but uh, my mortgage broker just didn't know anything about that. So it would have helped to be matched up with the right professionals early on. But but yeah, I was just a beginner at that point in time when I was first looking for my property. So didn't know the right questions asked, but uh, just through learning and, and connecting with smart individuals and speaking with the right people, I was able to reach where I am today. And so Sean, today, like, you know, just given that you don't necessarily have the mortgage, I'm sure your natural savings rate must be really high because like, I think for most Canadians, one of our biggest like monthly expenses is either mortgage or rent, right? So to not have that, I'm sure your savings rate is high, but you also indicated that you had a HELOC basically on your primary residence and you've been reinvesting that. Where do you reinvest today? Is it stock market, private lending? Is it real estate? Is it some other asset class, crypto, et cetera? What do you do with your money now? Yes, I mostly invest in the market right now. I'm considering buying property as well, but yeah, it's just more challenging from a cash flow perspective these days. You really need to have like, because of the higher home prices, you really need to put like a more hefty down payment on the property. If, if your goal is to at least break even or be in a positive cash flow perspective, it's not like pre-COVID when 
you could just buy pretty much any property in southwestern Ontario, like in St. Catharines or, or Welland or Niagara Falls, and it would pretty much always break even or cash flow positives. It's more challenging with the higher interest rates coupled with the higher home prices definitely makes it a challenge. That's why some of my mortgage clients have been looking elsewhere, perhaps if they're not able to put down more money on a property, like I would say the Maritimes like Nova Scotia and as well as New Brunswick have been popular areas. Because if you can both believe it, as we were talking about offline, you can actually buy rental properties for under 200,000 there, which is pretty crazy as far as I'm concerned. You can't really find anything else like that in the rest of the country, as well as Saskatchewan has been an area that people are looking at. Like I had a mortgage client recently sell his property in Ontario and buy two properties in Saskatchewan. Like he could probably afford to buy four or five properties if he wanted to. So yeah, just all about if you want to invest in real estate, all about being more creative and figuring out a way to get it done in, in this market here. Yeah. I was just going to say, not that it doesn't come with its own downside though. I think like one of my clients today called me has two properties in New Brunswick and like, he's basically been like getting rinsed by like the property managers out there. It's crazy. They like tried to get him to put in a new roof and like, it was just a little bit of like shingles and that needed to be replaced or whatever. Right. So I think, yeah, but outer province investing has definitely become a significant like topic in the last couple of years, just because the Ontario market doesn't really work as much anymore. Right. And so I understand the bring your concept of mortgage for primary residences, but have you seen any investors take maybe a creative approach or try to pay down their mortgages on their rental properties a little bit faster or no? It depends on the type of investor there for like people who their goal is to keep building, like adding, like I have some clients where they want to buy a rental property, like every single year, those people aren't really necessarily in a hurry to do that there. It's more about like, yeah, because it really depends, but they just want to be able to have money for the down payment on their next rental properties. So, I mean, perhaps paying down the mortgage makes a sense on the rental property. Perhaps it, it doesn't. They just are trying to get the like 20% down payment for the next property there. So it really depends on the circumstances. But I would say, yeah, like generally speaking with real estate investors, they don't really... It's more about putting their capital to good use and building wealth. They're not really in a hurry in, in my experience to pay down their mortgage because they believe that they, and the, and the numbers tell the story that they can earn a lot more by putting that money to better use rather than paying it down. And uh, I mean, it's nice to earn a guaranteed rate of return, like four or 5% or whatever the mortgage rate is. But if you could put that money to greater use and earn a lot more, wouldn't you rather do that? And the beauty of real estate is just through the power of leverage there. Like you can't do this with stocks. I mean, you can buy a property and put down like with the rental property, put down as little as 20% of the bank finances, the other 80%. I mean, you can get margin accounts with investing, but you can't get a margin account in, in terms of those numbers there. So like, yeah, just through the power of leverage, like imagine putting 20% down, the property only goes up percent, but because you only put 20% down, you get five times that return, 10% return. So yeah, like once you kind of spell the numbers that way, people perhaps uh, change their tune on real estate and investing. Now, mind you, buying a property just for leverage isn't necessarily a good decision. You also need to, that's kind of like speculation and you also need to take the cash flow into account there. But uh, yeah, just try to explain things in different ways to my mortgage clients and see if it's right for them. But yeah, it is 
It is more challenging. It's just about looking in the right areas these days and finding a team of individuals that you trust because like you were saying, Mayu, like people can try to take advantage of you if you don't keep a close eye on them there. So just finding a team like property manager, realtors, other people that you can trust so that you're not taken advantage of is so key there. I, I would still visit the property like at least once a year, just to make sure everything's going well. But yeah, once you find that team of people who you can trust, it just makes you feel a lot better and then sleep a lot better at night, I find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A couple of points you mentioned there. So you were saying that you were taking from your HELOC to invest in equities. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is that you can write off the interest, right? Or Mayu, yes. maybe chime in if you know. Yeah, on, on your investment properties. Yes, that's one of the main reasons that I did it there. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not an accountant myself, but mm-hmm. I have spoken with many accountants on this topic here. But yes, it's not. There's often an area of confusion with what is tax deductible and what isn't. People think, oh, I'm borrowing money from my primary residence. So that's not tax deductible because it's my primary residence. But it's clear in the income tax code, which It's not the most exciting read there, but it's clear that it's what you use the funds for. It's not where the funds come from. So as an example, if you borrow money from your primary residence to like invest in an unregistered account and the right type of investments there, you should be able to deduct the interest associated Mm -hmm. with that. Whereas if you borrow to buy like, I don't know, a personal boat for your family. No, that would not be tax deductible. So it's not whether you borrow the money from a private residence or rental property. It's what you use the the funds for. So yeah, once an accountant explained it to me that Mm -hmm. way there, it just helped be a lot more clear for me. But yes, that's the key point to help determine whether it's tax deductible or not. Mm -hmm. And for those who want to look a little bit more into that, it's called a Smith maneuver. So if you guys are interested in that, go ahead and Google that. Funny enough, as I was looking into it, it was coined by someone in I think Vancouver, of course, Vancouver, because the equity there is crazy. So <laughs> they got to find a way to make use of the primary residence equity. While we're talking offline, you mentioned that a decent amount of your book and business, like half of it is split between investors and the other half and users. Now, I am very interested in the end user side, just because like we interact with investors on a day to day and investors look at things from a different lens than end users. And it's, it's almost like we're out of touch with the reality of what's actually happening in the market sometimes for the average everyday individual. Having a book of business in the end user world, you probably see people in different situations, people actively looking in the market, people who may have questions for you off the top of my head or sort of what I'm reading on the headlines. You need at least like quarter million income or whatever to buy any sort of house in Toronto. You need bank of mom and dad to help you break into the market. Very high income, like people who have low income or even like medium income have no chance in home ownership in Toronto. Based on the clients that you're working with in their house search, what are your opinions on these sorts of things? Is there any way that someone can get ahead in sort of building that down payment, getting their income all in check to buy their dream home in Toronto. Like what's your general advice over there and and sort of lay the landscape of what you're seeing from an end user perspective currently? Sure. So it's definitely a lot more challenging these days than just 10 years ago when I bought my property. Like I remember my personal experience was I was pre-approved for like an extra hundred thousand and I didn't even want to spend it. So the experience back then was, it seems like the a mortgage broker or the bank would approve you for more money than you needed. But that's definitely different nowadays, ever since the mortgage stress test came in, where you have to qualify at a rate 
2% higher. So yeah, you definitely have to be a lot more creative. And that's really where my value comes in as a mortgage broker, because I can review somebody's mortgage file and identify exactly like, yeah, if they want to spend more money on a property, then I can kind of look at it and figure out ways to get them there. Like for example, perhaps they have an expensive car loan that um, we have to debt service and we can refinance that and lower the payment so that they can qualify for more other options, of course, is the gifted down payment option. But I would say another popular option is having like a parent co-sign. Like, yeah, if your parents are at their peak earning years and they pretty much almost have their mortgage paid off or have their mortgage paid off entirely, then that could be a good way to help you qualify for more. There's also lesser known things like if you have that 20% down payment, that really, which is, is challenging in the market these days. But yeah, if you're able to come up with a 20% down, there are provincial credit unions where you don't have to qualify at the mortgage stress test. You can qualify at just your mortgage rate and they offer like 35 year amortizations, 40 year amortizations. So yeah, there's definitely creative ways to get into the market. Like once you have that 20% down, it really unlocks so many more options because like the banks also the standard like debt service ratios, they can go above that once you have the 20% down. But yeah, it is definitely challenging to put 20% down. Those are just some examples there. And just trying to get your foot into the door. Like I have seen people definitely expensive to buy in the GTA, but there are more affordable options out there. Like, yeah, I've seen somebody buy a studio apartment that uh, you can get studio apartments like for under 500,000 these days. I've seen them for like 400,000 or under. So it's more about getting your foot in the door. I mean, I don't think you'd want to live in a studio under 500 square feet for the next like five or 10 years, but it's more getting your foot into the door, building up that equity and being able to move up in the market there because, um, yeah, like you just kind of have to make some sacrifices up front just because of the expensive house market and, um, yeah, yeah, like get a lot more creative because unless you have a household income of like 200,000 or 250, you just kind of have to, uh, figure out some of those creative ways to get in. And and that's what I sit down with my clients and do that for the people who may not be earning like 200,000 or 250 or something like that. Yeah. Well, I also say, I don't necessarily think a single individual needs a fully detached house. Right. So I feel like those detached properties, the townhouse properties, et cetera, are really for like dual income households. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I don't really know. But and it seems like some of the, the, the bachelors and the one bedroom and stuff like that are, are kind of at the upper end of being affordable, but still attainable by a lot of people. As part of your journey on your burning your mortgage, I think uh, there must have been a significant element of like personal finance like that was really factored into it, right? So talking a little bit to our listeners that maybe struggle with just accumulating that down payment, right? What are some of the trips or the hacks, et cetera, that you did kind of by being frugal? Like, what did you kind of do to kind of help you get there and accumulate that 150K that you did? In 2012, which is also a harder time because wages aren't honestly what they are today, right? Like, you know, earning quite a bit more than they were back then, right? So, yeah. Sure. So I would say like reading a book that really helped me was like reading the original Wealthy Barber and Wealthy Barber Returns and other personal books like that. Of course, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like Austin enjoys there. But reading personal finance books really helped me. And the point that they hammered home a lot of them was the concept of paying yourself first, like making your savings, your number one priority, treating it like an expense. So basically just having that money, figuring out exactly how much money I want to save when I want to have it saved by like, yeah, like for example, figuring out, I want to save a hundred thousand dollar down payment. 
okay, how much from each paycheck do I need to put away? Just kind of reverse engineering the math that way. That really helped me because yeah, if you just treat savings as a, a last priority and just save whatever money is left at the end of the month, well, surprise, there's probably not going to be very much or any money left at, at the end of the month. So just treating it as a number one priority really helped me. And also having the side hustles and the extra income sources really helped me because I had like my full-time job to cover my main expenses, had a bit of money left over from that. And then with the side hustles that I did, like personal finance journalist and other work that less glamorous work that I did, like working at a supermarket for a few years, I just put all that extra money as like lump sum payments towards the mortgage. So yeah, and just living frugally during that time, not taking any extravagant trips or anything like that, living in the basement and and all that, because yeah, I kind of saw it as short-term pain for long-term gain. And like I said, I didn't get to travel a lot over those three years, but once I did have my mortgage paid off into like 20 countries altogether. So just kind of paying my dues and then reaping the rewards later on. That's kind of the way that I saw it there. So um, yeah, I don't want to spoil my whole book, but uh, like I said, paying myself first was a, a very integral part of accomplishing what I did. Yeah, I think that's extremely important. And it's like a lot of it is, is just poor money habits for people in general. Right. And even for myself, like when you make a conscious effort, that's the key word, conscious effort, right? To put money aside, then that's when you really start building that savings to invest elsewhere. And for a lot of people, you save that money, but when you see it in the savings or checkings account, they're going to spend it. So it's almost like sometimes you take it a step further where you pay yourself first in an investment account. Because once it's invested, it's liquid. Yeah, but you're not likely going to go pay the fees to sell it off and then take whatever money, especially if the market goes down, right? So you almost have to force yourself to save and invest. So you just ignore that money. Because for a lot of people, again, if that money sits in the savings account, it's good as being spent. <laughs> so uh, just making that conscious effort there. And I like the point that you made about delayed gratification. I've been a huge proponent of that too. For a lot of people, it seems like living life in the extreme and it could be in the short term, right? But like ultimately at the end of the day, you can only go through that if you have sort of an objective or a goal in mind. If one of your objective and goals is to buy a house, like it is what it is, right? <laughs> you got to do these things. Unless that's not a priority, you don't want to buy a house. And sure, you don't have to work those multiple jobs. Sure, you don't have to save an incredible amount. But if that's what you're making a priority, you know, you got to make the sacrifices to get there. So those sort of points that you pointed out. I guess with investors and first time home buyers, any kind of last tips that you generally just share on whether it's on paying off your mortgage, whether it's on the investing side, the journey overall, uh, before we just jump into our last two questions. Sure. So going back to my point earlier, it's so key to surround yourself by the right type of people, trustworthy people, I would say, get references and, and just make sure that they're the right fit for you. Because yeah, like, it took me over two years to buy my primary residence. And as soon as I found a realtor that was the right fit, it literally was maybe like a less than a month before I found a property and had a successful offer. Whereas I worked with a couple other realtors where maybe they're like part-time realtors and I just didn't feel like they're giving their full attention to me. So yeah, just kind of vetting people, making sure you're working with trustworthy people and uh, making sure that you're working with people that are the right fit. Like if you're looking at buying a rental property, you want to work with like a realtor that 
understands that space because that's different than like a primary residence. If you're looking at buying a condo, you want to make sure that your realtor has experience in that area there because buying like a single family home is a lot different than that there because I definitely don't live a life of regrets, but I would have been further ahead if I had the right people earlier on. I mean, yeah, I'm not complaining where I'm at, but I mean, similar to you, Austin, like if you had, I guess, uh, known what you know today, then you would have not kind of made some of those mistakes along the beginning like I did there. But it's all about like life is a journey. It's all about learning along the way, but you definitely save yourself uh, money and grief by just vetting people properly and, and just working with people that you trust early on so that you don't waste time and, and money when you don't need to be. Uh, the first question, I guess, before we wrap up here is, uh, where do you see your business in the next uh, three to five years? Yeah, I definitely don't think the dream of home ownership is dead or anything like that. It's more about being more creative in this market here, like willing to make the sacrifices like that we talked about earlier. So probably see like more of the same mix, maybe more investors going forward if mortgage rates come down because it is more challenging. If you're not willing to buy a property or a province or put more money down on the property, it's definitely more challenging to find uh, cash flow these days unless you're willing to do that sweat equity and roll up your sleeve. I would definitely think more. Uh, I would expect if rates were to come down in, in the future, like some economists are perhaps predicting in the next few years here, that we'll see more investors getting to the market. So I expect more of my clients would be interested in the investing side there. But yeah, I definitely think uh, still a lot of end users as well. But uh, yeah, if uh, rates do come down in the coming years, I'd expect more investor type clients because uh, that has uh, slowed down over the last while here to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And I guess on that topic, what is one of the biggest risks that you see for new investors or new first time home buyers in today's market? And I guess the risks for both of them really depends. I mean, I would say with uh, real estate investors, I would say the biggest risk is just not knowing your, your numbers ahead of time, running your numbers ahead of time, because yeah, if you could just go and buy a rental property, but if you don't actually sit down to crunch the numbers, you might not realize that you're running like a deficit every single month. So yeah, just making sure that you know the numbers because buying a primary residence is a lot different than buying a rental property. Like a primary residence is more about lifestyle, like where you want to enjoy your free time and raise your family if you have one. Uh, whereas rental property, it's all about the numbers. So um, yeah, I would definitely say, make sure before you're doing this the first time, don't just buy the rental property just for, because you watched a few shows on HGTV, actually sit down and crunch the numbers, make sure you figure out what your long-term goals are, whether it's like cash flow appreciation or a combination of the two and figure out what your strategy are, is like, definitely listen to both of your podcasts here and gain a better understanding of, of real estate and investing and understand if you want more like a short-term strategy or like a buy and hold strategy, just making sure you understand all that upfront before you jump into the market, I think is key. Cause if you just buy a rental property and you have no idea what you're doing, then you can end up wasting money and uh, losing money as well. So just making sure that you do all that and have a good tenant screening like uh, process in, in place. 
which my book goes over a bit in terms of that there. But uh, yeah, just making sure you know all this stuff up front and work with professionals that can help you, I think is key because yeah, the people who said that they've had bad experience with, with rental properties, I just think it's because they haven't done the necessary work and homework up front. So just make sure you do that before you jump in and you're more likely to have a good experience. Awesome. Yeah, no, I appreciate all of that advice. And uh, no, couldn't agree more. What's that saying? If you don't have a plan, you're planning to fail or something. I'm probably butchering the saying, but uh, great advice there. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time, Sean. If people want to connect with you, reach out to you, learn more about you and your journey, how could they best do so? Sure. So you can visit my website, www.burnyourmortgage.ca. And you can also follow me on social media at Burn Your Mortgage, active on Instagram and Facebook. And yeah, post a lot of great content there. I'm not like you, Austin, posting all those great videos. I hope to get into videos sometime soon there, but I love your your videos. I'm more of educational content, but yeah, if you're looking to learn more about real estate, I'd like I hired a team to help me with the social media stuff there and it's all free. So definitely be sure to check out my website. You can listen to my podcast there. And uh, if you want to learn more about real estate, just check out my Facebook or Instagram. Awesome. And all of that will be down in the show notes below if you guys are interested in giving it a click. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with the friend, family members that help uh, give us a five-star review as well. It helps support this podcast and helps bring great guests like Sean on. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.